Thank you so much, Joel. I'm happy and honored to be back here at Duke, which is my alma mater. For almost 1,700 years, Christians regarded the four canonical Gospels as being, among other things, records of what actually happened. Divine inspiration seemed to guarantee historical veracity, as did the belief that the purported authors of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were either eyewitnesses or friends of eyewitnesses. An additional reason for trust was the supposition that the evangelical stories fulfill many of the Messianic oracles in the Jewish Bible. The upshot was the conviction that Jesus said and did everything that the Gospels have him say and do. To read them was to encounter him as he once walked upon the earth. There were, to be sure, moderating voices. Some, such as the church fathers, Papias and Jerome, were fully aware that the Gospels don't agree on the sequence in which events happened. And Luther thought that Mark 13, the eschatological discourse, is a bit misleading because it doesn't preserve the order of the words as Jesus spoke them. John Calvin also sat loose on some things. He recognized, for instance, that Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew 10, the Missionary Discourse, are secondary compilations. According to Calvin, the first evangelist, for thematic reasons, gathered into his discourses words that at one time were scattered, words that Jesus originally uttered on diverse occasions. Even more clear-eyed was Origen, who in the third century anticipated modern criticism by candidly observing that at many points the four Gospels do not agree. He inferred that their truth can't reside in the material letter. The evangelists sometimes altered things which, from the eye of history, occurred otherwise, he wrote. They could speak of something that happened in one place as if it had happened in another, or of what happened at a certain time as if it had happened at another time. And they introduced into what was spoken in a certain way some changes of their own. The spiritual truth was often preserved, one might say, in the material falsehood. Despite the observations of Origen and a few other attentive readers, serious doubt over the historical fidelity of the canonical Gospels never, to my knowledge, assailed anyone in the ancient or medieval church. But a series of historic developments, the critical study of texts during the Renaissance, the Protestant critiques of Roman Catholic tradition, the growing secularism in the wake of the wars of religion, the skepticism of tradition that attended the Enlightenment, conspired to fashion new ways of understanding the scriptures, not only outside the church, but also within it. And those new ways eventually led, perhaps inevitably, to the modern quest of the historical Jesus, which has been going on now for two and a half centuries. Remarkably, many pew-sitters remain happily oblivious to it all. They have somehow avoided most or even all of the serious intellectual commentary on the gospel since the Enlightenment. Perhaps typical are the two churches I grew up in, one Presbyterian, one Congregationalist. Never in Sunday school or from the pulpit did I hear anything of the modern debates surrounding Jesus and the Gospels. Ignorance, it said, is voluntary misfortune. Still, one expects something from one's teachers. 
either my pastors knew nothing about the debates regarding Jesus, or they consciously kept a convenient silence. Perhaps they were persuaded that their congregants did not need to know what they knew, and maybe they worried that curiosity might kill the Christian. I recall that Maldonatus says somewhere, it is a duty for us to doubt for others, lest they doubt for themselves. In any case, my pastors failed one inquisitive teenager miserably. I had to stumble onto the almost invisible topic all on my own, without help from the church. And then I had to wonder, sitting alone in my bedroom, why all the secrecy? Once I began to read the literature, I suffered theological confusion and anxiety, as must many churchgoers today when they learn of the quest for the first time through National Public Radio or Time Magazine, or when they peruse the offerings of a bookstore, stumble onto the various titles about Jesus, and then actually read a couple. Once becoming aware of this strange new world of the critical historians, Christians may well worry whether the quest is a subject that they can, having learned about it, safely ignore, or whether it instead confronts them with facts that should amend, perhaps significantly, their inherited religious convictions. They may, for instance, fret upon learning that many modern scholars don't believe that Matthew wrote Matthew or that Jesus spoke the discourses in John. They may also, depending upon their background, find themselves vexed upon becoming persuaded that the old props, miracles, eyewitness origins, the proof from prophecy, have seemingly fallen to the ground and are in need of being themselves propped up or may be abandoned as everlasting ruins. What should they think? Well, I'm not sure what they should think because I'm not sure what I myself think. So in the time that you have graciously given me, I shall frequently revert to the interrogatory mode. And that's where I'd like to start right now, with this big question. What do we, especially if we want to do something theological with modern historical conclusions, make of the circumstance that so many different candidates are in the running for the title, the historical Jesus? As you should know, more than one historical Jesus resides between the covers of today's books. We indeed have a plethora of them. There's the Jesus of Tom Wright, a Jewish prophet and forerunner of Christian orthodoxy. There's the Jesus of Marcus Borg, a spiritual mystic who dispensed perennial wisdom. There's the Jesus of E.P. Sanders, an eschatological prophet of Jewish restoration. There's the Jesus of John Dominic Crossan, a Galilean but cynic-like peasant whose vision of an egalitarian kingdom and nonviolent God stood in stark contrast to the power politics of Roman domination. One could go on. To the outsider, theories about Jesus seem to crisscross each other to create a maze of contradictions. The different portraits, which serve different constituencies in the academy and in the marketplace, are to a large degree not complementary, but contradictory. Which Jesus should baptize our theology? Or does wisdom side with the cynical sentiment of the old Greek philosopher Xenophanes? All things are matters of opinion. My questions are not rhetorical but sincere, because the answers are not obvious but obscure. I suppose that in one way or the other, I have been pondering them for decades. And the longer I have thought, the more convoluted and challenging everything has become.
Like all non-trivial questions in this veil of tears, the arguments are many, the conclusions few. Again, what should we think? The major critical reconstructions of Jesus differ so much because their authors return various answers to the really significant questions. Why did Jesus go up to Jerusalem? Did he anticipate his own death or even deliberately provoke others to engineer it? If he did sense whither things were tending, with what categories did he interpret his imagined future? And did he think of himself as greater than John the Baptist, and so as more than one who was more than a prophet? What did he mean by the enigmatic circumlocution, the Son of Man? Did he expect God's kingdom to displace in the immediate future all the kingdoms of the world? Or are the saints that seemingly attribute such an expectation to him rather products of the church, or should they bear some other meaning? Some would no doubt protest that I leave the wrong impression. Many of my colleagues believe that their chosen field of study is, like the hard sciences, capable of making genuine advances, and that, in fact, much progress has been made. Have we not taken great strides during the last few decades? Do we not, for instance, know a lot more today about first Galilean uh, Aramaic, about first century Galilee, and first century Judaism than ever before? Do we not now have a much better sense of how the Gospels evolved than did our exegetical predecessors? And is there not, in fact, much upon which the specialists concur? I don't wish to deny that yes is the right response to these questions, although it remains true that some of the older books are still pretty good, while some of the newer books are surprisingly bad. We are not always and uniformly moving onward and upward. And yet, a candid observer would surely see little agreement regarding most of the truly interesting and theologically charged questions. Progress has not touched all subjects equally, and whatever consensus may exist, it remains mostly, in my judgment, boring. Almost everyone in the guild takes for granted that Jesus was a Jew who lived in first century Palestine, that his parents were named Mary and Joseph, that he taught in parables, that he spoke about God's reign, and that he was crucified in Jerusalem. But without elaboration, these uncontroversial facts engage us about as deeply as a list of the U.S. presidents and their dates. And for theological purposes, such facts are like a rainbow drained of all color. Most of us instead would like to know exactly what Jesus meant when he proclaimed the kingdom of God, would like to know about his self-conception, would like to know if he was a sort of pacifist on principle, and would like to know what he saw when he gazed into the future. Yet even if there were some sort of contemporary consensus on these more interesting and important issues, wouldn't it be imprudent to build a house of faith upon a recent academic headcount. Today's consensus will be tomorrow's memory. Big books on Jesus are like the clouds. No matter how large, imposing, and beautiful they may be, they never last for long. There will never be any definitive non-canonical edition of his life. We may, out of vanity, Imagine that our contemporary results will somehow prove to be more important and to have a longer shelf life than those of our scholarly ancestors, but we will become passé soon enough. Our academic descendants will look back upon our writings as we look back upon the works of the 19th century. Maybe a few of our writings will be of antiquarian interest, 
but any authority they once had will be long gone. This is one reason why I'm allergic to the phrase, assured critical result. Those three words, which too often function as a simplification for novices and an excuse for scholars to think less, fail to resonate with my experience, which is rather that the discourse of New Testament scholars is Heracletian. Everything keeps changing. Working with assured critical results reminds me a bit of the old saw about shoveling frogs into a wheelbarrow. They keep coming out even as one is trying to shovel more in. Study of the historical Jesus belongs to the diversity and pluralism of modernity, or if you prefer, post-modernity, and there can be no easy appeal to the consensus on much of anything. The biblical guild is not a group mind thinking the same thoughts, nor are the experts a single company producing a single product, history. As Chesterton says somewhere, there is no history, there are only historians. The unification of academic opinion would be almost as miraculous as the union of the churches. If you are holding your breath, waiting for the consensus of the specialists, you will pass out. (laughs) So if we are to do something with the historical Jesus, it's going to have to be somebody's particular historical Jesus, Wright's Jesus, or Crossan's Jesus, or Sanders' Jesus. It can no longer be the Jesus of the guild or the Jesus of the scholars because they, in their writings and at their academic conferences, argue with each other over almost everything. The Jesus Seminar was not a problem because of its results. Anyone knowing the history of the discipline had encountered such before, but because their publicity machine tried to pass off their conclusions as the official consensus of scholarship. Their voting, however, represented only one school of thought within the guild, not the guild as a whole, for which no individual or group is the elected representative. And have they not already ceased to be the latest fashion? Perhaps I'm being too cynical here. That there are persistent differences on the subject of Jesus is not to say anything surprising or profound. What academic field of study is not riven by the obstinate disputations of the experts? And what religious opinion is without its countless dissenters? If we were to to dismiss the quest just because opinions differ, we would also have to abandon theology, which is scarcely a pleasant hamlet of harmony. If we are to believe anything, we must get used to disagreeing with others. And yet, even if one wants to make a theological wager on this or that historical reconstruction, you've got the disconcerting problem of the amateur and the expert. Whereas the quest for the historical Jesus is written up by professionally trained historians, other individuals with a different training typically do our theologizing. And don't the latter revert to amateur status when they leave their area of expertise and survey another subject? Perusing books they could not have written and scrutinizing the conflicting arguments of the recognized specialists Are they not a little like me, trying to figure out the brain-mind problem by struggling through a few books of philosophy and neuroscience? What are the odds that I'm going to get much right? Likewise, what are the odds that the theologian is going to figure out which historians are the best? There's no referee to declare a winner, only a confusing and interminable game. How in this era of ever-escalating esoteric specialization do the amateurs judge the experts? Whom should we follow through the quest's labyrinth of doubt and speculation? 
If the discord of the experts and the difficulty of judging between them are stumbling blocks for theologians wanting to do something with somebody's historical Jesus, equally challenging is the circumstance that nobody's historical Jesus is the product of pure historical thinking. All or almost all of the big books on Jesus come with what we may call a built-in theology. Some contributors to the quest have, we may grant, no explicit theological interests, and others do an excellent job of hiding theirs. And speaking for myself, I know from introspection and from reading John Meyer's big books on Jesus that even a professing Christian can write about the historical Jesus without consciously trying to score theological points at every turn. But ideology, as everyone should know by now, is everywhere nonetheless, and surely a modern Albert Schweitzer would not struggle to espy the myriad ways in which personal predilections have greatly influenced recent investigations of Jesus. Who doubts that authors who themselves have a high Christology tend to write books in which the historical Jesus has a high Christology? Or that those who are uncomfortable with Nicaea and Chalcedon more often than not, unearth a Jesus who humbled rather than exalted himself. The correlations between personal belief and historical discovery must be endless. Jesus seems friendly to evangelical Protestants in books written by evangelical Protestants. And he is a faithful Jew in books written by non-Christian Jews who want to reclaim him. It's easy to be suspicious here. You can do anything with statistics, and you can do anything with the historical Jesus, or at least a lot of different things. It's even possible, I've learned to my dismay, to be cynical about oneself. For some time, I've been fascinated by one form of what the literary critics call intertextuality, by how a text augments its meaning by deliberately interacting with well-known predecessor texts. My absorption in this study led me some time ago to write a book examining the ways, often very subtle, in which the author of Matthew recalls the story of the Exodus and the life of the lawgiver with the result that his gospel narrates a new Exodus and his Jesus becomes a new Moses. A few years later, I wrote a book on how the texts common to Matthew and Luke, but absent from Mark, the so-called Q material, relate themselves to the Jewish Bible. I argued that those texts are full of the Old Testament, which they quote, echo, rewrite, and argue with. This second book is entitled, The Intertextual Jesus, and its last chapter attempts to pass from our written text to Jesus of Nazareth. I ended up arguing that the flesh and blood Jesus, like his literary namesake in the Q texts, engaged the Jewish scriptures. That is, the intertextual Jesus of Q is not a misleading representative of the historical Jesus, who creatively linked his speech and his activities to portions of the Old Testament. It was only sometime after my book on Q appeared in print that I opened my eyes to the obvious. I had created a Jesus in my own image, after my own likeness. Having enthusiastically preoccupied myself with the study of intertextuality for a decade, I'd happily discovered that the Jesus of ancient Palestine was just like me, at least in one important respect. He may have been a first century Jew, and so in many ways a stranger and an enigma, but he was also skilled at setting up the sorts of intertextual exchanges that I love to unravel. So I had found Jesus, and he just happened to be a learned and admirable expositor, a man after my own intertextual heart. <laughs> How does it stand with others? Let me briefly consider a second individual, the late Robert Funk, the principal organizer of the much-beloved and much-hated Jesus Seminar. Funk's theological orientation 
is manifest from his last book, Honest to Jesus, which is wholly candid about the aim of the quest, which is to Funk's mind to set Jesus free. Free him from what? From the ecclesiastical creeds, and especially from the beliefs of the conservative churches of North America. Funk turned the historical Jesus into a wrecking ball with which to bash the walls of institutional creedal Christianity. Whatever the biographical impulses may have been, Funk was a well-known type, the anti-fundamentalist. With this in mind, it's fascinating to follow him as he strolls with us through the Jesus tradition, pointing out what represents Jesus and what doesn't. The tradition, it goes without saying, often depicts Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet, and it regularly presents him as speaking about himself in exalted fashion. The tradition further purports that Jesus thought in terms of the saved and the unsaved, and it frequently has him quoting from and alluding to the Bible. Funk's Jesus, however, is emancipated from all of this. He has no eschatology to speak of, no Christology to speak of, no soteriology in the traditional sense to speak of, and he shows little interest in the Bible. Funk exports to the post-Easter period all the sayings and stories that might indicate otherwise. Now, although I may be entirely mistaken in this matter, I can't but wonder about the relationship between, between Funk's theological preferences and his historical conclusions. Eschatology, Christology, Soteriology, and the Bible, while at the heart of American fundamentalism, are no part of Funk's personal theology. Jesus is coming again, the fundamentalist says. Funk denies this. Jesus is Lord, the fundamentalist says. Funk thinks otherwise. Jesus saves, the fundamentalist says. Funk has other roles for Jesus. The Bible tells me so, the fundamentalist says. Funk retorts, well, maybe it does, but, I quote, it's a highly uneven and biased record. <laughs> Whereas the fundamentalist cites the Bible, Funk instead appeals to the Jesus he has reconstructed, a Jesus who functions to replace the canonical texts, and who in each instance turns out to be Funk's precursor, not the helpmeet of Funk's religious opponents. Those elements in the tradition most beloved of conservatives conveniently happen to be, without exception, post-Easter fictions. Funk's Jesus is on Funk's side. It seems a cynic might muse almost too good to be true. Now, I don't here contend that the utility of Funk's Jesus for Funk means that Funk must be wrong about everything, although, as it happens, I really think he is. <laughs> His conclusions are offered as the products of, products of arguments, and they merit being met by arguments. They certainly can't be undone by observations about Funk's biography or personal convictions. Were I to imagine otherwise, fairness would require that I shoot ad hominem arrows at my own Jesus on the grounds that an intertextually savvy sage is suspiciously congenial. Still, the ease with which Funk's historical Jesus comes to Funk's theological assistance inexorably precipitates within me some suspicion. Now, John Dominic Crossan has worried about this matter of personal predilection a great deal because he has been accused of overlaying his own Irish history onto the Jesus tradition. 
According to some of his critics, Crossan's interpretation of Jesus as a first-century Galilean peasant resisting Roman imperial injustice in the name of Jewish tradition represents the 19th-century Irish peasant resisting British imperial injustice in the name of Catholic or Celtic tradition. In response to this charge, Crossan doesn't deny that there is, in his mind, an analogy between the ancient Jews and the modern Irish. Only he insists, sounding to me a bit like the philosopher Gadamer, that we seek the space between narcissism and positivism, which he labels interactivism. By this, he means that we should attempt to create as honest a dialectic as possible between the past and the present, between the viewed and the viewer. This seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable response. Although most of us writing about Jesus have theological interests, we can't be dismissed as doing nothing more than whittling a peg upon which to hang our personal agendas. We necessarily see with our own eyes, and whenever we enter a text, we can't leave ourselves behind, the first person singular we always have with us. We also, however, have the magical ability to be self-aware and so self-critical. Not only can we appreciate that our own perspective and our own prejudices are not shared by all, but we can conduct a self-inventory and query our own motives and presuppositions. While we inevitably read, <coughs> excuse me, while we inevitably read ourselves into the texts, we can at the same time come to conclusions that neither arise solely from our expectations nor simply confirm our wishes. Furthermore, we are not in this alone, but are members of a guild. The predispositions of one jostle against the predispositions of another in a sort of communal dialectic, which enables those who so desire to enlarge themselves. Now, I've just tried to make the best of a worrisome situation. To be predisposed is not, I think, to be inescapably wrong. A predilection need not always blind us. Sometimes it may instead help us to see more clearly. I also believe that we can, if our vision is obscured, sometimes take the log out of our own eye. At the end of the day, however, I can't exercise all of my concerns about our biased subjectivity. It remains the case that much Jesus research appears captive to ideological predilections in worrisome ways. If we could but peer beneath all the sophisticated arguments, we would find that much of the disparity in our field is related to intractable differences of philosophical outlook and religious commitment. The academic masks very often hide non-academic faces. Another concern I can't exercise is this. If some theologians really care about the historical Jesus, they may sense an obligation to do more than just assemble him out of their own theological predispositions. Now, such theologians, for reasons I have indicated, will not be able to use the historical Jesus of the scholars in general, who disagree about so much, but only the Jesus of some particular scholar or school. But how will our theologians go about deciding which school or scholar? I'm not sure what the answer should be in theory, but I guess that in practice, the method is that of attraction. Theologian A adopts the reconstruction of historian B because theologian A likes the Jesus of historian B. And the fondness of A for B derives undoubtedly from theological congruency. That is, A and B share similar ideological inclinations. So whereas some theologians may earnestly wish to appeal to the Jesus of history and may imagine that they are in fact doing this, what may sometimes or often happen is that they are really utilizing the Jesus of their own theological predilections because those are the predilections of the historians they have chosen to follow. 
Like is attracted to like. All one need do to see the truth of the matter is ask, which pastors and theologians have made use of the Jesus Seminar, and which pastors and theologians have made use of Tom Wright? Well, so much for the problem of discord and diversity in my field of study. For the remainder of this first lecture, I should like to contemplate a second issue. What are we doing when we try to isolate the historical Jesus from the ecclesiastical Jesus? The modern quest began with the German and English deists, who were interested in anti-ecclesiastical readings of the evidence. Operating with a hermeneutic of suspicion long before the advent of that term, they doubted that the church's Jesus was the real Jesus, and they set out to prove this. Their goal was to separate truth from fiction, the truth about Jesus from the fiction of the church. They wanted to erase the tellers from their tales and to find the undisguised identity of the historical individual behind the institutional superman. One understands institutions always rewrite the past and mythologize it to their own ends. And the ancient churches can't have been the one exception to this sociological rule. Religious figures grow in the telling and memories morph into legends. It makes sense to attempt to disentangle the historical Buddha, if there was one, from the fabulous stories later wound about him. It makes sense to seek for the historical Muhammad beneath the mountainous tell of Islamic tradition. And it makes sense to distinguish Francis of Assisi from the Francis of fable, whose delightful miracles multiplied as the decades after his death rolled on. In like fashion, it seems sensible from the historical point of view to quest for the pre-Easter Jesus on the assumption that our sources, like the sources for everybody else who matters, are not innocent of exaggeration and invention. So we may want to know, what was Jesus like before his pious followers painted over his portrait with their distortions and legends? Can we scrape off the overlay? I understand the question, and don't reject the enterprise it has generated, an enterprise to which I've tried to contribute. I'm keenly interested in the relationship between story and memory, between memory and interpretation, and between interpretation and misinterpretation. I must confess, however, that with every year of further work, I become more uncertain about anybody's ability, including my own, to extricate Jesus from his interpreters. Matthew 13 assigns to angels the task of separating the good fish from the bad fish, and I think that it may take supernatural talent to go through the net of tradition and throw out what doesn't come from Jesus. More importantly, I've become much less sure of what exactly it is I'm trying to accomplish when I look for the treasure of Jesus hidden in the field of the church. The problem is that I've come to appreciate the obvious, which is that personal identity can't be isolated from social identity. Although many of us have imagined that we put the historical Jesus on display by isolating precisely what he said, precisely what he did, and precisely what he thought about himself, no one's identity can be reduced to words or to deeds, or to self-consciousness, or to some combination thereof? Let me explain. In serious moments, people sometimes ask themselves, who am I? It's a perplexing question. It encompasses the past, the present, and the future. It must account for feelings as well as thoughts. And the point I wish to underline It sets before the mind's eye the faces of the many people with whom one has had significant interactions. So the question quickly becomes, who am I in relation to others and who are they to me? 
I'm reminded of the Russian sociologist Alexander Luria, who reported that when, in the 1930s, he asked an illiterate peasant in Uzbekistan about his character, the answer was this, how can I talk about my character? Ask others, they can tell you about me. I myself can't say anything. Makes sense to me. Before returning to Jesus, it may be helpful to ponder for a moment what critical methods we might employ to investigate the identity of some other human being, say that of the man who introduced me just a few minutes ago, Joel Marcus. Who is he, really? (laughs) I suppose that one could ask him, but if one stopped there, the picture would be woefully incomplete and distorted, wouldn't it? Joel would, of course, be full of helpful facts about himself, although I fear that he might, like Davy Crockett, enjoy throwing in a few entertaining whoppers not wholly tethered to the truth. (laughs) But I think that one would also want to talk to some other people, say his wife and his daughter. In fact, we can be confident that they know all sorts of things about him that he himself doesn't know or might not want or think to tell us. For the same reason, one would desire to interview siblings and other relatives, lifelong friends and current students, participants in the biblical guild, and faculty colleagues, members of past churches he has attended, and members of the church he now attends. All of these informants, it goes without saying, would enrich our understanding of Professor Marcus, of who he has been and who he is today. To suppose instead that one could find the real or the authentic or the original or the historical Joel Marcus by disregarding the testimonies of his family, friends, and acquaintances in order to focus solely on what he has done or told us would be silly. Maybe, however, we have been a bit silly with regard to the historical Jesus. Maybe we have unthinkingly reduced biography to autobiography. Certainly, we have sought to set aside Methean redaction and Markan theology so that we could get back to Jesus as he was before people wrote him up. But should we not be more circumspect here? Of course, people can be misunderstood, and fictions may be told about them. At the same time, fictions need not be misleading. Many of the legends about Francis no doubt catch his character. And although Heraclitus never said exactly, you cannot step into the same river twice, the aphorism nicely sums up one of his central themes. Beyond that, people can misunderstand themselves or remain oblivious to what others see in them. Even more importantly, they can't take the measure of their lives as a whole because such becomes apparent only after they have died, perhaps only long after they have died. Giving up the ghost doesn't halt the waves of influence our lives propagate. These continue after we are gone to run into the waves of others, creating new interference patterns. This is why a biography of Abraham Lincoln that confined itself to Lincoln's own words and deeds a biography wholly lacking the reminiscences and interpretations of others, a biography forbidding admittance of any information subsequent to April 15, 1865, 
the day of his assassination, would be dissatisfying and riddled with holes. Self-perception is only partial perception, and while the passing of time dims memories, it can also unfold significance. As with Lincoln, so with Jesus, the Nazarene never lived solely to himself, never resided exclusively within his own skin. He was always interacting with others, and their perceptions of him must constitute part of his identity, as must his post-Easter influence and significance. The method of subtraction, the ubiquitous modus operandi of the quest, aspires to erase everything from the record that comes from others or that comes from after Jesus' death. But will that not leave us with an emaciated figure? Let me uh, answer my question with three examples of how Jesus is present, I think, in places where modern historians typically see only the church. Although I may be wrong, the temptation narratives in Matthew 4 and Luke for don't strike me as sober history. For one thing, and as Origen already observed, there's no high place from which one can see the whole world. For another, doubting the historicity of the similar dialogues between rabbis and Satan strikes me as sensible and turnabout is fair play. Why should I evaluate the synoptic encounter differently? In any event, I concur with many that our story is the product of a sophisticated Christian scribe who spun a delightful Haggadic tale out of Deuteronomy and the Psalms. The Jesus Seminar colored all but a tiny portion of Matthew 4, 1 through 11 and Luke 4, 1 through 13 black, thereby indicating that the paragraphs are largely or entirely fictive. Maybe I would have gone along with their vote on this one had I accepted the invitation to join their deliberations, which I didn't. But while a black vote was the end of the story for the Jesus Seminar, it's not for me, for this legend is steeped in memories of Jesus. Was Jesus not a miracle worker, as our story assumes? Did he not refuse to give authenticating signs, just as he does here? Did he not think of himself as leading a victorious battle against the forces of darkness, for which Matthew 4 and Luke 4 stand as fitting illustration? Did he not have great faith in God, a fact which the dialogue between Jesus and the devil presupposes and expounds? The temptation narrative may not be history as it really was, yet it's full of memory. My judgment is that taken as a whole, its artistic originator has managed to leave us with a pretty fair impression of Jesus, even if the episode doesn't contain one word that Jesus spoke or narrate one thing that he did. Memory and legend are not easily disentangled. So when we try to weed out the fictions, will we not be uprooting much else besides? Mark 15 illustrates a related phenomenon. This chapter opens with the appearance before Pilate and ends with the burial by Joseph of Arimathea. Its 47 verses are almost devoid of Jesus' speech. He utters only two sentences. You, Pilate, have said so in 15.2, and my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in 15.34? The chapter also fails to recount any deeds of Jesus because he is throughout a passive victim of violence. 
bound and led away here, stripped and nailed to a cross there. If then, in our quest for the historical Jesus, we care for little except his words and deeds, Mark 15 would seem mostly irrelevant. Beyond that, furthermore, critical scholars have raised some serious questions about the historicity of what is narrated. It's not just that Mark 15:16 is our sole witness to an annual custom of releasing, in response to popular request, a prisoner during a festival, nor that the darkness attending Jesus' death has its parallels in legends about Adam, Enoch, Romulus, and several Roman rulers. Even more problematic is the luxuriant intertextuality of Mark 15. Everything rests upon scriptural subflooring. The chapter borrows repeatedly, for example, from Psalms 22 and 69, and whereas Tertullian and Eusebius found in this the overriding hand of providence, many modern scholars find instead the creative hand of Mark and his predecessors. For Crossan, the passion is prophecy historicized. It's not remembrance, but imagination with a lot of help from the scriptures. But is the narrative in Mark 15 really just another stretch of Canon for the Jesus Seminar to color 99% black. Is it just ecclesiastical theology and story form? Does the historical Jesus disappear before we get to Mark's last two chapters? I think not. Whatever one makes of the historicity of this or that episode, and whether or not Jesus laconically answered Pilate with, you have said so, or despondently ended his life with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark's stark account mirrors, in my judgment, not only Jesus' character, but also his eschatological expectations. Concerning his character, don't we have in Mark's passion narrative the same man who speaks to us in the Sermon on the Mount, the enigmatic sage who counsels us not to resist one who is evil, who instructs us to turn the other cheek? He has no harsh words for his enemies. Being reviled, he reviles not. He doesn't struggle against his bonds, nor does he spit at those who spit upon him. The man persecuted for righteousness' sake in Mark 15 is the incarnation of the exhortations in Matthew's inaugural discourse, which means if that discourse faithfully manifests the spirit of Jesus, then Mark 15 does the same. As for the relationship between Mark's account of the crucifixion and Jesus' own expectations, our evangelist has constructed a striking series of correlations between his eschatological discourse, Mark 13, and the chapters that it, it introduces, 14 as well as 15. 13.24 foretells that the sun will go dark, and this happens when Jesus is on the cross. 13.2 prophesies that the temple will be destroyed, whereas its veil is torn apart two chapters later. 13.9 foresees that the faithful will be delivered up and will appear before Jewish councils and will be beaten and will stand before governors, all of which happens to Jesus soon enough. 13.35-36 through 36 admonishes the disciples to watch, lest the Master come and find them sleeping. And in Gethsemane, after the Master tells his disciples to watch, he comes and finds them sleeping. These and other parallels reveal that for Mark, the eschatological discourse and the passion narrative are of a piece. Jesus' death belongs to eschatology. His demise either foreshadows the latter days or it inaugurates them. Although this is a Mark and theological construct, it is, to my mind, a descendant of Jesus' own eschatological expectations, 
For along with Albert Schweitzer and others, I believe that Jesus anticipated for himself the fate of a martyr and that he construed that fate in terms of Jewish eschatology, whose primary pattern is tribulation followed by vindication. In other words, Mark's literary pattern, which makes the end of Jesus a sort of end of the world in miniature, is not independent of the influence of Jesus' own theology. Jesus' eschatological interpretation of his anticipated fate rather belongs in the genealogy of causes behind that pattern, which is to say the historical Jesus can show up even in Markan redaction. For my last example of Jesus being present where modern historians never think to look, let me leave the Gospels entirely and travel to Paul, to his celebrated psalm of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Although the words in verse 2, if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing, may echo Jesus' promise about the omnipotence of faith, the beautiful chapter is entirely Paul's work. It makes no pretense to derive from Jesus. But derive from Jesus, at least in part, it does. Like the Jesus of the Gospels, Paul makes love the chief virtue. Like the Jesus of the Gospels, he says that matters of the heart trump all outward show. Like the Jesus of the Gospels, he calls for patience, kindness, and long-suffering. The exposition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 so strongly recalls Jesus' words and behavior in the Gospels, including, as Chrysostom saw, his conduct in the Passion narratives, that some earlier commentators, when arriving at this chapter, decided that Christ must have been its model. And they even wondered occasionally whether the pre-Christian Paul had not, after all, known Jesus of Nazareth, a fantasy for which there is, of course, no evidence. Nonetheless, given that Paul elsewhere shows at least a passing knowledge of Jesus' teaching and character, and that just two chapters earlier he links self-renunciation to Jesus' precedent, surely 1 Corinthians 13 reflects the continuing influence of Jesus' spirit and demands. Jesus wrote nothing to the Corinthians, but without him 1 Corinthians 13 would not have been written. Origen when commenting on 1 Corinthians 13, fittingly found the verses illustrated in Jesus. And he quoted Philippians 2. He humbled himself. Paul's ruminations on love, Mark's passion narrative, and the story of Jesus verbally jousting with the devil illustrate, I should like to suggest, what Crossan has termed, albeit with only modern historians in mind, Interactionism, the mean between the extremes of positivism and narcissism. The New Testament offers us neither the historical Jesus unsullied by Christian interests, beliefs, and distortions, nor Christian distortions, beliefs, and interests unsullied by the historical Jesus. For there was always a dialectic. Although ideology imposed itself everywhere, Jesus was not an inert, amorphous lump waiting for Christian fingers to give him shape. He was not like poor old Enoch, whose laconic three verses in Genesis set no bounds to speculation so that he became, in Jewish and Christian legend, a scribe, a proselyte, a preacher, a judge, a king, and the inventor of sewing. Quite a list for someone who probably didn't even exist. Jesus, by contrast, was a real person and a real memory, and he became a living tradition that encouraged some construals and discouraged others. 
The New Testament is, from one point of view, not so different from the modern books on Jesus, which are always the outcome of give and take between traditions and interpreters. Often, no doubt, we give too much of ourselves and take too little from him. And sometimes we are unwittingly speaking when we assume we are listening. But in the idiom of Matthew, Jesus is always with us, and with us to some extent in all, I would contend, but the very worst of our modern reconstructions. It's the same in the New Testament, that Paul was never made out to be preexistent, or never equated with the Logos, or never thought to be one with God the Father, tells us something about the Apostle, whereas the fact that, on the contrary, all this happened to Jesus tells us something about him. Even in John and its soaring discourses, which contain only scattered remnants of words Jesus uttered, he remains a real presence. John's retrospective Christology was possible precisely because Jesus made himself out to be the central figure in God's eschatological scenario. And this stupendous self-perception naturally provoked his followers during and after his ministry to speculate about his distinctive identity. So the construal in John remains part of Jesus' Wirkungsgeschichte, part of the history of his effects, and that means part of his identity. If it's true that the ripples of influence radiating from human beings are central to their identities and that death doesn't halt them, then what are we doing when in questing for Jesus we separate the authentic materials from the inauthentic? Is this not perhaps a crude procedure? Does it not presuppose a stark and uncertain antithesis that needs to be set aside for some new and improved thinking? The question will be all the more pressing, of course, for anyone who, such as myself, celebrates Easter and believes that Jesus can't be reduced to a bundle of memories, however influential, who believes, rather, that his death was not the end of his activities. If I may, in conclusion, use the language of Paul, Jesus became a life-giving spirit who moved into the early Christian texts with their memories and their fictions, their speculations and their debates. Jesus' life reached beyond itself to live on in others. If we ignore them, don't we ignore him? Thank you. Uh, okay, well, um, we're slotted in here until 12.15, and we want to get our money's worth out of Dr. Allison. Uh, now, he is complaining about uh, his voice being gone, but um, I thought that until his voice failed completely, maybe uh, we could have uh, a few questions. Um, so, um, and those of you who have to or want to leave, uh, feel free to do so. But... Um, uh, maybe I'll I'll start off uh, with one. Um, I, you know, I appreciated what you were saying about the uh, effects of a person on those around him uh, being part of his identity. Um, but I was wondering, you know, how far you want to take that, and is that 
the only thing that's at play here. I mean, it seems to me that when we tell stories about people who have been treasured, um, there is a tendency, uh, and I think you can document this, to sort of elide or gloss over or ignore um, their faults and their weaknesses. And I, I think you could make a case that that's happening uh, in the Gospels as they tell the story of, of Jesus' death and you know, the progress from the cry of dereliction in Mark, which I take to be historical, to the triumphant cry in John, it is finished. So, you know, I'm just wondering if everything in the tradition reflects the historicity in this broad sense that you're using, or aren't there some things in the development of the tradition that reflect the psychological needs of those uh, who follow the person, the need to believe that the person was great? What's the justification for you, or? Why isn't it just and? Psychological needs and memory. That's what I thought I was doing with this um, interactivism with with Crossan. Um, The viewer and the viewed, the viewers bring all this stuff with them, but they are still affected by what what they are viewing or by the object. So I don't don't disagree with what you, you say, and I've spent years trying to um, separate Jesus from the church. What I was trying to say, honestly, is that much of this is confusing. And I said, I don't know exactly what I'm doing anymore, so I don't know how to answer your question. (laughs) Clearly, I'm not a philosopher. It's just I've sat back and wondered some things. And that's, again, why I I just said I'm in the interrogatory mode here. I'm sure lots of things were forgotten, and I'm sure needs uh, glossed over things and forgot things and rewrote things. That always happens. But um, that's not a reason to, to ignore testimony. When we were at my uh, dad's wake, we were telling stories about my father, and I remember not, thinking that not all of this stuff was true. On, on the other hand, I thought the general impression was correct. So, so I thought we got the gist of my dad, even if some of the stories were fictional, and that's kind of what I was doing with the, the temptation narrative in, in uh, Luke 4 and Matthew 4. Yeah, I, I called it a legend, but I also said it's full of memory. Um, just one more point here. I remember coming here to Duke at some point in the 1990s, and somebody came up to me, I can't remember who it was now, and said, I heard a story about Dale Allison. And uh, here's the story. And I remember listening to it and saying, that never happened, but it caught me exactly. That is, it got my character, it said who I was, but it was false. Uh, so again, if you're just going to do this mechanically, you're going to throw that story away. If you're the Jesus Seminar, it's going to be black. But I think we need a little more imagination, and things are a lot messier than, than even four colors. Maybe we need a lot more. Okay, we had some more, some more questions. Yeah. Uh, you I don't, I don't, 
the gist of the question is, <clears throat> how do you uh, communicate some of this to your parishioners? Well, first of all, I doubt that the pulpit is the right place. Adult Sunday school strikes me as... Um, an appropriate place. But it also is a question that can't be answered because it depends on what you make of the quest. That is, uh, I do know some people who just think it's a waste of time. I know others who take it very seriously. It's just going to depend on your evaluation of the discipline and what's valuable. And what's valuable, I assume, you communicate to your parishioners. And then when you have people who ask you questions, then you can you can get critical if you have the knowledge. Um, all I was doing was was reflecting on the fact that as a youngster, I didn't hear anything, and I was in a Methodist uh, church library my senior year of high school, and there was a copy of Albert Schweitzer's Quest of the Historical Jesus. I pulled it off the shelf and read it, and I didn't know what the heck to think about anything. I was completely confused. Now, it would have been nice if somebody at some point had just say, you know, said, there are these discussions, and here are two or three different ways of of thinking about this and, and taking it and so on. It was just, it struck me in those churches as, as a, I discovered a secret. And it, it was very scary for me. So maybe I just, you know, that's just my personal testimony. All right? Another question? Okay. Uh-huh. You were mentioning this interplay between what you might call a historical personage and the character of the personalities of those who are living. So that what you end up having before falls is shaped by that was what you're saying with interactionism. Uh-huh. And given that the gospels are the products of the communities of Christians that were shaped by the apostles and their successors, does this theory of interactionism imply that our confidence in the gospel portrayal of Jesus can to some degree be equated the confidence in the character or spirituality of the apostles? Uh, look, I tell you what, um, I, do, I don't like to be pretentious. And I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it in those terms before. So I could sit up here and pretend to be wise. I just don't know what to say to that. Um, as an historian, I'm probably thought of as being sort of in the middle. That is, I'm not real skeptical about the Gospels. I think the Gospels give us a good sense of what Jesus said and give us a good sense of the sort of sorts of things he did. Um, how I would relate that to the character of the apostles is an interesting question. And since I never heard of it, and since I'm from Kansas and don't think quickly on my feet, I'm just going to punt. <laughs> Okay, one more. Back to uh, what uh, Professor Marcus says. Uh, what is your starting point when you... I think it is a very valuable point what people said about someone. But usually you, you have some things that you might be almost sure about. Uh-huh. That you can compare. Then you can say something like you said. Uh, I wonder what that starting point is. Well, that... that my, my own starting point is is this. I think that the themes and motifs that are repeated over and over again in the various 
Gospels and the various strata and so on are the things you have to start with. I think if those are wrong, if the repeating patterns are wrong, then the sources are just too bad and we need to forget it. So instead of starting with little items, I I sort of start with asking, what what are the general impressions this tradition leaves me with? If the general impressions are wrong, I can't get started. If they're right, then I can can go forward. So that's that's my method this, this year. Clark Lectures in the year 2008, since Professor Marcus gave such a splendid introduction yesterday that could not be bettered, and since our time is short, we will go ahead and proceed directly to part two of Professor Allison's lecture on the topic, The Historical and Theological Jesus. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Dale Allison. When, in the 1970s, I first began studying theology, a number of books informed me that Christianity is an historical religion. These volumes stressed that my faith, unlike that of Hindus and Buddhists, had grown out of real events. To use the titles of two of those books, The God Who Acts Had Established Salvation in History. The implication seemed to be that Judaism and Christianity were, in their historical nature and claims, unique and so preferable. My teenage mind, interested in knowing what might be distinctive about Christianity, went along. It made sense to me that the Bible was largely an interpretation of the deity's saving activities in the past. Indeed, and in retrospect, this conviction nudged me toward my chosen profession, biblical studies. And it was years before I cared much about anything other than historical questions. I remember one occasion during graduate school right here at Duke, when a guest lecturer spoke eloquently about Marx's literary artistry. I was impatient. Who cares about Mark, I thought to myself. I want to know about Jesus. Continued study, however, began to teach me that history is not the epistemological bulwark that I had early on expected it to be. Instead of becoming my security, it turned out to be my insecurity. Not only, I decided, Will intelligent scholars perpetually debate the really important and interesting issues? But many of those issues will forever remain contested in my own mind. At some point, moreover, I awakened to the obvious. Facts don't dictate their interpretation, nor does history carry its own meaning. Theology comes out of history only after one has read it into history. The past or rather modern historical reconstructions of the past, can't then be the point of departure for religious faith or theology.
Having come to these realizations, I didn't go on to infer that the past is neither theologically here nor there, for it seemed obvious that some Christian beliefs require historical correlates and that some of those correlates might be subject to critical investigation and revision. For example, the words suffered under Pontius Pilate belong to the Apostles' Creed, and they are straightforward enough. If there was no Jesus of Nazareth who died between the years 26 and 37 A.D. when Pilate was prefect of Judea, then something thought to be importantly true would be indisputably false. And while it's wildly unlikely that any evidence will ever call into question crucified under Pontius Pilate, it's conceivable, at least hypothetically, that new discoveries could change our minds. Some modern scholars, furthermore, would say that we have already learned a few things that should amend our theological constructions. But that's not our topic for today. What I rather wish to do in the first part of this second lecture is ask a sort of preliminary question, namely, how much history does theology require? John Keats' poem on first looking into Chapman's Homer ends with these well-known words. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. Or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise silent upon a peak in Darien. It was Balboa, not Cortez, of course, who discovered the Pacific Ocean. Yet the poem is no worse for the error. As M.H. Abrams wrote, the factual mistake matters to history, but not to poetry. One is reminded of what W.V. Stanford said about Homer's Odyssey. For appreciation of his poem and story, it makes little difference whether Ithaca is Theaki or the Isle of Man or Rhode Island. What then of the canonical Gospels? They too are works of literature, so why, you might ask, should we fret over how much history is in them? To what extent are the Gospels like the parables that Jesus told? It's beside the point to ask whether he ever learned of a merchant who sold all that he had to buy a pearl of exceeding value. And some of the church fathers were wasting their exegetical time when they discussed whether the story of a rich man suffering in Gehenna while a poor man named Lazarus is comforted in Abraham's bosom actually took place. Should we not live by the golden rule, whether Jesus spoke it or not? What difference would it make if we learned that he had been crucified not outside the walls of Jerusalem, but outside the walls of Jericho? Maybe some would say, Discussions over the historicity of the Gospels are of little more value than the debates as to whether Shakespeare really wrote the plays attributed to him. Some of the arguments against the traditional ascription may intrigue, but what can they have to do with the value of the Shakespearean corpus whose merits are independent of its authorship? If we can separate art from the artist, why can't we separate the literary Jesus and the theological Jesus from the historical Jesus. The question gains impetus from modern study of the Bible, 
for many of us within the churches have changed our minds about the importance of history for understanding any number of scriptural books. We no longer, for example, look to Genesis if we are seeking to gather facts about the cosmological or geological past, but rather consult geologists and cosmologists. Similarly, we learn about human origins not by reading the Bible as a handbook of natural science, but by acquainting ourselves with what anthropologists and scholars of prehistory have to tell us. Adam and Eve have ceased to be historical individuals and are now purely theological figures. This doesn't mean, however, that Genesis has ceased to function as scripture. We've learned how to read the text as theology without reading it as history. We can believe in God as creator and profess the world to be good without worrying about the location of Eden or how it is that a snake could speak. Recognition of the unhistorical nature of some scriptural texts is hardly a recent innovation. Even if moderns have gone further than did any of the ancients. Here's a dispute from the Talmud. One of the rabbis was sitting before Rabbi Samuel ben Nachmini and as he expounded, he said, Job never was. He never existed. He's only a parable. Samuel said to him, against you, the text says, there was a man from the land of Uz whose name was Job. But the other retorted, if that is so, what of the verse? The poor man had nothing except one poor lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, referring to Nathan's parable to David. Is that anything but a parable? The book of Job is also a parable. Rabbi Samuel's antagonist was no doubt correct. Job's not fact. It's fiction, as Theodore of Mopsuestia, the 4th century church father, also recognized when he likened the book to Greek tragedy. And Job's fictional nature has nothing to do with the book's value. Theodore and his rabbinic counterpart were not alone in believing that narratives can have theological meaning without being historical. The famous Cappadocian saint and theologian Gregory of Nyssa was taken aback by the 10th plague in the story of the Exodus from Egypt. The death of the firstborn made no ethical sense to him. I quote, Pharaoh is unjust, and instead of him, punishment falls upon his newborn child, who on account of his infant age is unable to discern what is good and what is not good. If such a one now pays the penalty of his father's evil, where is justice? Where is piety? Where is holiness? Where is Ezekiel who said, the soul that sins is the one that must die? And again, the son should not suffer for the sin of the father. How can the history so oppose reason? Gregory answered his own questions by dissolving the narrative's historicity. Unable to find the true spiritual meaning in the literal past, he decided that the events took place typologically and that we should come away not with a history lesson, but with a spiritual lesson. By all means, kill sin at its inception. Origin 
Gregory's theological ancestor, was also troubled by the divine violence in Scripture, and he made similar exegetical moves on a number of occasions. If violence in Scripture forced Origen and Gregory at times to deny history without denying theology, modern critical scholarship gives us additional reason to do the same. We now know that Noah's Ark comes from the imagination. There was no ark full of animals. Similarly, when I've quizzed my Old Testament colleagues and asked them, was there an historical Moses? They've typically responded, not very helpfully, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. And so it goes. Much of what people once took to be history is now known to be or suspected to be something else. So if meaning is to stay after history has gone, meaning can't always and everywhere depend upon history. Now, some have no trouble carrying this thought through much of the Gospels. John Dominic Crossan has written that Emmaus never happened, Emmaus always happens. By this, he means that the story in Luke 24 is symbolic, a metaphoric condensation of the first years of Christian thought and practice into one parabolic afternoon. The rest of the Easter narratives receive similar treatment from Crossan. His version of the Christian faith doesn't require that the concluding chapters of the Gospels report any historical events. Belief in the resurrection is not for Crossan a conviction about Jesus' molecules, about whether they became miraculously reanimated and left the tomb. Indeed, there was, according to Crossan, no tomb at all. Jesus' lifeless body was probably thrown onto a pile for scavengers. Other Christians, however, understandably find themselves with an altogether different view of things. For them, faith without history, indeed without a lot of history, is dead. Some, for instance, may be confident that confession of the resurrection requires that the tomb was emptied by supernatural means. Arguments that it was not, such as are found in Crossan's writings, can only for such believers undermine the Christian faith just as arguments purporting to show to the contrary that the tomb was empty can be construed as evidence for the truth of our faith. One is reminded of C.S. Lewis, who claimed in retrospect that an important contributing factor to his conversion was the realization, I quote, the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels is really surprisingly good. Well, should we side with Lewis? History matters a lot. Or... With Crossan, history doesn't matter so much. It might occur to some of you, as it has to me, that perhaps exegesis can come to our assistance in answering this question. Why not follow the intention of the text? When we say that Job is a work of fiction, we may be going against much of the tradition, but we're almost certainly recovering the original intention of the book's contributors. Likewise, maybe historians can show us which episodes the evangelists thought of as sober history and which they thought of as Haggadah, as edifying story. Can historical criticism not divine, for instance, that Matthew redactionally created the story of Peter walking on the water and intended it to be not history but parable? Can't we also figure out that 
whoever crafted Matthew's infancy narrative did so out of scriptural materials and knew himself to be creating theological parables, not sober history. There are two problems here. One is that it is unfortunately impossible to answer such questions with any real conviction. I've been trying to do it for years, and I've come up empty. You may doubt that Peter walked on the water, but you have no way of knowing what Matthew thought about the matter. You may also surmise that Matthew's infancy story is in part legend, but I don't see how to determine whether Matthew was of the same mind. There just aren't enough clues in his text for resolving such issues. More importantly, the intention of the text can't be our sole or even chief guide. Contemporary Christians who read Genesis as theological saga instead of historical record do so not because of what a close reading of the book has taught them, but because of what science and archaeology have demanded. That is, convictions acquired independently of the text have moved us to construe it in a certain fashion. And this is the rule for all of our reading. Presuppositions extrinsic to the text greatly influence how we interpret them. Let me illustrate by briefly turning from history to eschatology. Mark 13:26 pledges that the Son of Man will someday come on the clouds of heaven. Determining what that verse meant in the first century is one thing. Determining what it means for somebody today is quite another. Imagine four different readers. A fundamentalist, a liberal Protestant, a sympathetic non-Christian, and an unsympathetic atheist. All four, let us say, agree that the evangelist Mark expected someday to look up into the sky and to see Jesus upon the clouds. After that, agreement fails. The fundamentalist claims that Mark's literal understanding is binding for interpretation. We, too, should look to the skies from whence Jesus, our Savior, will someday return. Our liberal Protestant responds that, whatever the ancients thought, people can't ride on clouds. So, we're compelled to view Mark 13.26 as a mythological statement. The verse is a way of affirming that the God of Jesus Christ will set things right in the end. The sympathetic non-Christian, disbelieving in a deity, disagrees with both the fundamentalist and the liberal and instead finds the real meaning of Mark 13.26 to lie in the fact that people always need hope, even if it's only hope in a myth. The unsympathetic atheist then retorts that Jesus has not returned and will never return, and so the true meaning of Mark 13.26 is that Christians are deluded, their faith vain. The lesson to draw from our four exegetes is that a text is never the sole determinant of its interpretation or application. Readings are rather joint productions. They require not only judgment as to what a text meant to those in the past, but also judgment as to what it should or can mean in the present. And this involves convictions extrinsic to the texts themselves. Matters aren't otherwise with historical questions. They are observer-dependent and reflect internalized metaphysical and historical assumptions. 
Determining whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John believe something is not necessarily the same as determining whether we can or should believe it. Additional factors are involved, including one's historical shrewdness and or, as with a miracle, one's philosophical disposition and or, as with Gregory of Nyssa and the Tenth Plague, one's moral sense. So the question, how much history does theology require, has as its answer, it depends upon one's presuppositions, one's worldview, one's theology, and so on. Although this outcome is disappointingly obvious, three attendant considerations keep it from being altogether trite. First, one's theology, worldview, and presuppositions need not be fixed for life, as though a person raised in a particular ideological camp must be stuck there forever. It's possible, as many of us know from personal experience, to learn to be self-critical and to change one's mind, even on matters of great existential import. Honest reflection can alter perception. Second, as I stressed earlier, many biblical texts that were once presumed to be historical and yet are now known to be unhistorical, Genesis 3, for example, are still capable of producing theological and religious meaning. This should caution us. Some things once thought essential and immutable have shown themselves to be inessential and mutable. And over the past two centuries, many Christians have learned to get along with less history than did their predecessors. Does the future hold more of the same? I don't know. But the subject is all the more vexing for me in the light of my students' exegetical papers. When I ask them to write on a passage in the Gospels, I often require that near the beginning they address the matter of origin. Does their selected text go back to a word or an activity of Jesus? Or did the early Christians rather invent it? How much can be attributed to the evangelist's hand? I've discovered over the years that the students' decisions about origin whether well-grounded or not, have little or nothing to do with their subsequent exegesis. Their theological, homiletical, and devotional meditations are not organically related to their verdicts about what really happened. The different subjects, to the contrary, remain unconnected. What does this mean? I don't know. Third, if we can ask, I don't. I, I, the one thing I, I, I'm hoping is it doesn't mean they have a bad teacher. <laughs> Third, if we can ask, how much history does theology require? We can equally ask, how much history can historians provide? That is, we can inquire about supply rather than demand. From one point of view, in fact, one could say it doesn't really matter what theology wants or thinks that it requires, because this begs the question of what there is to be had. But the subject of what we can expect to get from historians isn't the business of these lectures, and I must now turn to the next topic, which I can introduce with a series of questions. What are we to think when our modern historical reconstructions don't match the narratives of our sacred texts? Does history become our authority and so trump the text? Can history somehow replace the text? 
And what's the theological status of a passage whose historicity is debated or denied? Some have no difficulty answering such questions. When text and history depart, defrock the former and coronate the latter. This was the view of the late Robert Funk. If historical results contradict the claims of a text, then so much the worse for the text. Its theological authority is gone. Several years ago, the common lectionary reading for Sunday included Luke 16:18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. I know of a Presbyterian pastor in Pittsburgh who, much taken with the Jesus seminar, checked the status of Luke 16:18 in the five Gospels the seminar's official public statement of its voting results. As it turned out, Luke 16:18 is colored gray, which means that in the very questionable collective judgment of the seminar, Jesus probably didn't utter it. The pastor made this circumstance the excuse for not wrestling with the difficult imperative. Jesus, he told his congregation, was probably not the author of this saying. It was rather formulated by an anonymous early Christian. And why, it was implied, should anyone heed an anonymous early Christian? Christians, after all, follow Jesus. Whatever view you take of divorce or of the origin of this saying, It must be conceded that this Presbyterian pastor's approach to scripture could never have occurred to Origen or Augustine, to Calvin or Wesley. The hermeneutical move is distinctly modern and, in my judgment, mistaken. If only the sayings that Jesus really spoke merit our attention, does this not imply that John's gospel, whose discourses are so widely thought to be mostly post-Easter meditations, must lose its canonical status altogether? We also have to ask, if we are to preach only the historical Jesus, whether we should still base sermons upon Paul's epistles. For his theology is much more than a reiteration of things that Jesus said and did. Indeed, his theology and practice are in some respects strikingly different from things that Jesus said and did. So how can Paul be in any way normative? If, however, we decide that Paul is nonetheless normative, should we not, if we adhere to our pastor's logic, confine ourselves to the authentic Paulines? Ephesians and the pastorals are probably, after all, pseudepigraphical. And why would anyone refuse to preach upon a word dubiously ascribed to Jesus, yet preach upon a word dubiously ascribed to Paul? What, moreover, should those of us who can't decide whether Paul wrote Colossians do, when a passage from that epistle shows up in the lectionary. Should we expound the text or not? Above all, what happens to the Bible as a whole if history and authorship become criteria for determining theological authority? What, for instance, should we do with the so-called historical books of the Old Testament, which contain so much that isn't history? And what should we do with paragraphs and chapters that come to us under the name of Isaiah or some other prophet, but which, according to critical scholarship, 
were instead produced by persons forever unknown. Buddhist eschatology, just like Jewish and Christian eschatology, has it that in the latter days, things will go from bad to worse. One old prophecy warns that among the horrors of the end, the sacred writings will disappear. It's not that the books themselves will cease to exist, but rather that their letters will evaporate. The characters will simply vanish from the pages so that the hallowed words will be no more. People will have to face the fearsome end without the guidance of their fortifying scriptures. I've sometimes thought about this arresting prophecy when ruminating on our Christian Bible. Although our letters are still on the page, much of the history that we once assumed to be there has in fact evaporated. Not entirely to be sure, but if we've had a decent religious education, we certainly have less history than we used to. And isn't it ironic that it's precisely in this age of diminishing history that some proceed as though the theological truth of the Gospels depends upon the results of historical critical analysis? Those who urge that Christian theology should eschew all fiction when constructing its Jesus will have to dismantle Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pull out the component parts deemed historical, and put them together in a new way. They will then presumably put their faith in the new reconstruction instead of in the canonical Gospels, in the same way that one might put more trust in a modern book on the Roman Empire than in Tacitus. Yet in my opinion, this would be to confuse the historical task with the theological task. The status and function of a canonical text within the church is not the same as the status and function of that text within the academy. As an historian, I'm all for tearing up the surface of the Gospels and doing the messy work of excavating them for history. As a churchgoer, however, I believe that the Gospels should be preached and interpreted as they stand, as canonical literature. I'm persuaded that for most theological purposes, we should treat the Gospels the same way we treat Genesis. We should use them, first of all, not to reconstruct the past, but to construe our world theologically. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are for the churches theological texts before they are historical texts. Just maybe here, the instinct of my students when they write their exegetical papers is sound. As already observed, they typically spend time trying to determine the origin of whatever passage it is they are interpreting. Yet their exegesis rarely, if ever, hinges upon their understanding of a text's tradition history or even upon their verdict, if they can reach one, as to its originating author. My seminarians proceed as if reconstructing the past is one ta uh, task, expounding the meaning of a text for the present quite another. The insignificance, at least for certain purposes, of the issue of historicity also becomes apparent when we consider how the modern churches have treated John 7:53 and following. 
the story of Jesus' encounter with a woman caught in adultery. These verses, which contain several words and constructions found nowhere else in John, are missing from most of the older Greek manuscripts. They're also absent from many Latin, Coptic, Syriac, and Armenian witnesses. Some old manuscripts mark the paragraph with asterisks, others place the lines after John 7.36 or John 21.25 or Luke 21.38 or Luke 24.53. For these and other reasons, we know that John 7.53 following was no original part of the fourth gospel. Where it comes from, no one knows. And whether it holds a memory of an historical encounter between Jesus and an unfortunate woman, no one knows. Yet this scarcely makes any difference for practical ecclesiastical purposes. This passage is still in our Bibles and will remain there indefinitely, even if set apart by extra spaces before and after, because the churches have collectively judged it to be memorable and edifying. It matters not that it's a secondary addition, although surely it would matter if the text were not so edifying. I think then we'd cut it out. By the way, we treat the end, uh, the ending of Mark very differently. We don't really like the snake handling stuff, so we're happy to sort of set that aside and not pay so much attention to it. But we're not doing that with this other passage. It matters not that this passage may fail to reflect an event in the life of Jesus. What counts is that the text has spoken and continues to speak meaningfully to those in the churches. It should be the same with the canonical Gospels in their entirety. It's the biblical texts, not the reconstructed history behind them, that have nurtured Christians through the centuries, supplied us with our liturgical readings, been the inspiration for countless sermons, and contributed to Christian doctrine and moral teaching. For theologians or preachers effectively to ignore those portions of the Gospels that some contemporary historians deem unhistorical is to change the rules of the game, and I think it's too late for that. Matthew and Luke may have swallowed up, if it existed, and I know a lot of people here don't think it existed, Q, but Matthew and Luke are not going to be swallowed up. The canon, for better and for worse, has long since been established. Christians can't abandon it without abandoning their religion. The Gospels remain the church's heritage and an inescapable part of Christian identity. We can't just jettison them or parts of them, at least not without ceasing to be ourselves. Now, of course, some would loudly protest that jettisoning the Bible or vast swaths of it is exactly what Christians need to do, given modern knowledge. Once text and history have split asunder, one can't hold fast to both, and it is to history that we owe our allegiance. But one can and ought to hold fast to both. Nothing compels us to concur with the fundamentalists in insisting along with, ironically, anti-ecclesiastical polemicists, that if Peter didn't literally walk upon the waves, then Matthew 14, 22 following signifies nothing. Such a hermeneutical move is unsophisticated and unimaginative, and we should reject it. The texts remain the same texts that they have always been, 
regardless of current views as to the history behind them. Modern historical methods may help us to interpret our texts, but they should not depose them. Historical studies of the Bible belong not on the lectern, but on the bookshelves. They are, for the churches, commentaries. Their function is not to displace the canonical texts, but to help us to better understand them. Having said all this, let me add quickly that historical reconstructions of Jesus still matter theologically, I think. Even when theologians no longer view Genesis as a source book of history and science, they must, for certain purposes, still concern themselves with the origins of the cosmos and the origins of the human species. Scientific and historical questions about what really happened remain important, even theologically important, despite the modern verdict that Genesis addresses other issues. The Gospels and the historical Jesus are, I believe, no different. Even as we recognize that the canonical texts can't be exchanged for the history behind them, this scarcely entails that such history is theologically of no account. Unfortunately, however, I have only two lectures, not three. So I don't have the opportunity here to suggest some ways in which history or the historical Jesus might be theologically significant. But I do have time to ponder one more question, a question that some of my divinity students have asked me. It's a simple and naive question, and it often stumps me. It's this. How might one come to know Jesus? Well, there's more than one Jesus. There's the textual Jesus of antiquity, that is, the several canonical and extra-canonical presentations of him. There's the earthly Jesus of the first century, the man who spoke with Peter and Judas. There's the so-called historical Jesus, or rather, the competing modern reconstructions of him. There's the Jesus of church history and tradition, or rather, the numerous religious conceptions of him through the ages. And then there's Jesus as he is now in his post-mortem existence, the risen Christ who many claim still to encounter in any number of ways. Jesus isn't one, but many. The diversity of images, claims, and experiences poses not only an ontological problem, who exactly was or is Jesus, but further, an epistemological question. How do we come to know him? What is his identity? A few things are clear. We become acquainted with the textual Jesus by reading or hearing old books. We can't, barring invention of a time machine, acquaint ourselves with the earthly Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph who lived in Nazareth. We can learn about him only indirectly through historical study. Doing history is also how we come to know the Jesus of ecclesiastical tradition. Books and articles on Christian doctrine and practice tutor us. As for how one comes to know the risen or contemporary Jesus, this happens through a Christian community, through its worship services, educational programs, and common religious life. 
Some would add that knowledge of him stems above all from personal encounter, such as feeling his presence or sensing him in one's heart or even beholding him in a vision. Our problem is that the various means don't run to the same end. We have John versus the Synoptics, Athanasius versus Arius, Wright versus Borg, and on and on it goes. Our sundry authorities and diverse experiences have created a catena of Christ, who then among the rivals is the real Jesus. Well, I have no simple, straightforward answer. So let me wind down this lecture simply by introducing a few lines of thought. Maybe they're worth pursuing. First, it is, if we are candid, easy to despair, easy to adopt the indifference of Sherlock Holmes. Each may form his own hypothesis upon the present evidence, and yours is as likely to be correct as mine. Jesus seems to be like a chameleon. He takes his color from whoever recreates him. Like Odysseus in the first line of the Odyssey, he is a man of many turns, of remarkable versatility, who appears now like this, now like that. We may, however, find some consolation in this, that Jesus, insofar as the representations of him make for a confusing assortment, is not wholly different from the rest of us. We all play several roles in life, and different people perceive us differently. What our immediate families think about us is not the same as what our friends think. And our enemies, if we have any, imagine something else again. It is, moreover, the fate of the famous to be especially subject to multiple and contradictory assessments. If perception is relative, then the more perceivers there are, the more perceptions there will be, and the greater their variety. A wide range of opinions accordingly attaches to all well-known figures, whether they be politicians, entertainers, or religious leaders. Alexander of Macedon, Constantine the Great, and Teresa of Avila have all sat for many dissimilar portraits, as have Martin Luther, Abraham Lincoln, and Queen Victoria. One might, in fact, formulate a rule. The more important people are thought to be, the more diverse the array of verdicts about them. Given Jesus' importance to world civilization and religion, a bewildering mixture of judgments can't but be expected. Jesus the secular sage versus Jesus the eschatological prophet versus Jesus the social reformer and so on, is not so much different than Paul the rabbi versus Paul the Hellenizer versus Paul the apocalypticist, etc. The relativity of perception is, incidentally, hardly a modern discovery. Several ancient Christian texts are familiar with the notion of the polymorphous Christ. Origen wrote that, Although Jesus was a single individual, people perceived him according to their abilities, according to their aptitude and inclination. And so he did not look the same to all, including all believers. This idea takes story form in a number of old books in which Jesus literally looks like John the Baptist to one, 
to Paul, uh, like Paul to another, like a woman to another, like a star to another, and like a child to another. One text even declares that Jesus is beautiful and ugly, young and old, great and small, for we all see as capacity permits. Now, surely one function of the canon is to set some limits to diversity so that we don't descend into solipsistic eisegesis. And yet it remains true that the nature and identity of Jesus, like the nature and identity of everyone else, are in the eye of the beholder. What we see is always a function of our being. Adults see things differently than do children, and bats perceive the world differently than do flies. Such physiological and psychological facts have their analogies in the religious realm. Matthew 5.8 says that the pure in heart will see God. This assertion correlates sacred knowledge with one's moral disposition. Knowledge of Jesus may have a similar correlation. For Jesus was, among other things, a moral teacher, and the truth of much of his teachings is in the living Those who seek to conduct their lives in the light of the canonical accounts of his life and speech will understand him differently than those who find guidance elsewhere. To read a parable that commends feeding the hungry and visiting prisoners is one thing. To respond by visiting prisoners and feeding the hungry is quite another. It's perhaps a bit like being a Shakespearean actor who experiences the plays in ways remote from those of us who never walk the stage. The Sermon on the Mount does not look the same from the outside as it does from the inside. In this connection, I recall the famed words with which Albert Schweitzer ended his quest of the historical Jesus. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old by the lakeside. He came to those men who did not know who he was. He says the same words, follow me, and sets us to those tasks which he must fulfill in our time. He commands, and to those who hearken to him, whether wise or unwise, he will reveal himself in the peace, the labors, the conflicts, and the suffering that they may experience in his fellowship, and as an ineffable mystery, they will learn who he is. Although Schweitzer set out to find Jesus through historical, critical sleuthing, and although he believed that he had indeed found him, he also recognized the limitations of his higher critical tactics and conclusions. He understood that there is, in addition to all of our inferences about the history behind the text, the first-hand experience of personally striving as best one can to enter into his moral and religious vision. Without such effort, our knowledge of him is the less. As the Jesus of Matthew says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Now to my next point. Countless Christians throughout the ages have thought themselves to know Jesus, not just through the memories of the church or through observance of his words, but also through personal encounters with him. What should we say to this? Let me approach the question by recounting the dramatic vision of a friend of mine. Several years ago, she was suffering a personal crisis. Her family life was in trouble, and she was racked with guilt. Indeed, she felt that she was deserving of hell. 
One afternoon, while sitting alone in her living room, one of the walls split open, revealing another reality, what appeared to be outer space, with spinning planets and glorious colors she had never seen before. Then amid the planets, she saw a figure walking toward her. Somehow, she says, she knew this was Jesus, although she saw no face. Because of her shame, my friend dropped her eyes to the floor, fearfully awaiting words of condemnation. But her Jesus instead sat beside her and said, what can I do for you? She told him, and he responded with encouragement and instruction. Then the living room wall reappeared and everything returned to normal. But my friend was no longer the person she had been before. She felt forgiven, comforted, guided, and she thankfully entered a new and better chapter in her life. Often, our initial response to a a report such as this is to offer an explanation. Either we are credulous or we are incredulous. We suppose either that Jesus really did appear and speak, or we assert that visions are hallucinations, nothing but projected subjectivity. The truth to my mind, however, is that unless we are dogmatic, flat-earth materialists, we just don't know what actually took place. If I may be candid, because I have myself ostensibly both seen and heard from a deceased friend, and because members of my immediate family and some close friends I trust have had similar experiences, my mind is open to possibilities more than mundane, Regarding visions of Jesus in particular, my thinking is this. If, as they may, the dead on occasion somehow communicate with the living, why should Jesus be incapable of such? At the same time, there's a very large body of critical literature on hallucinations, which scarcely encourages us to be naive about them. People, including perfectly normal people, often see and hear things that aren't there. Skepticism stands on a solid mountain of evidence. So I don't claim to know what really happened to my friend in her living room. But just as we can contemplate the meaning of a saying attributed to Jesus without knowing whether or not he authored it, maybe we can contemplate the theological content of visionary and other subjective religious experiences without knowing their precise etiology. Whatever the scientific or paranormal explanation of my friend's vision, we recognize her Jesus. He's the canonical Jesus who acts with compassion and offers forgiveness to those burdened by past failure. He's particularly like the Jesus of John 7, 53 and following, who doesn't condemn the woman caught in adultery, but protects her from others and then encourages her to believe that she can begin her life anew. Indeed, one could plausibly regard my friend's experience as a creative and personal exegesis of certain New Testament texts or stories about Jesus. Perhaps religious experiences that are perceived as encounters with Jesus belong to what the Germans call his Wirkungsgeschichte, or history of effects. And so, as I argued in yesterday's lecture, say something about his identity. For whatever else they may be, Christological experiences are responses to biblical and ecclesiastical traditions about Jesus, to the powerful images and ideas Christians have passed down regarding him. Ideas and images often much influenced by the canonical Gospels, and so in my judgment at least, partly informed by authentic memories of Jesus. 
This is true not just of the sort of dramatic vision my friend had. It also holds for more run-of-the-mill events. Those who in a Christian context feel themselves to be unexpectedly and graciously forgiven are experiencing Jesus' continuing influence. And those who, after reading the Gospels, feel compelled to serve the marginal are responding to his enduring demands. To come now to my final point, after which I shall shut up. Matthew 25, in depicting the Last Judgment, refers to people who have met Jesus without knowing it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from each other as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. This is not the place to argue about the interpretation of a text. I will simply give it as my opinion that all the nations includes all of humanity, Christian and otherwise, and that the needy are all in distress, Christian and otherwise. This passage then, like Jesus' injunction to love even enemies, blurs distinctions between insiders and outsiders. The upshot is that in this remarkable version of the greatest size, religious affiliation or confession plays no role. Deeds of loving kindness trump everything else, and salvation is not restricted to those who have entered the ecclesiastical ark. Matthew 25 is in harmony with the apocalypse of Sedrach, a Christian work of uncertain date which declares that people outside the church can have God's spirits and upon death may enter the bosom of Abraham. The interesting point for us is that in Matthew 25, the doers of good deeds encounter Jesus without knowing it. Although one guesses that Proverbs 19.17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full, is in the background, The precise thought remains opaque. Is the Son of Man, who elsewhere in Matthew seems to be the ubiquitous divine presence, somehow mystically united with those who suffer? Or is the connection more formal, so that the world's king, by a sort of royal proxy, identifies himself with his people? Or is some other idea in mind? I I don't know. Whatever the answer... Christian tradition sometimes attests the notion that one can can encounter the divine reality revealed in Jesus of Nazareth without knowing anything about him. The second century Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, rewriting ideas he learned from the Stoics, urged that Jesus was the Logos, of whom every tribe of men and women partakes, and that those who, before he came, lived their lives with the Logos were Christians, even if they were reckoned to be atheists, such as, among the Greeks, Socrates, Heraclitus, 
and those like them. By the way, I've always understood Socrates, but Heraclitus has always been a bit of a stretch for me. I don't think he was that nice a guy. Anyway, Justin also affirmed that the Stoics owed their admirable moral teaching to the seed of the Logos planted in them, and that other pre-Christians spoke well in proportion to the share or part they had in the seminal divine Logos. For Justin, Jesus Christ was the personification of a divine life that had made itself known to lesser degree at other times and places. Justin believed not only that the pre-incarnate word had spoken to some of the Greek philosophers, but also that he had appeared to Old Testament saints. According to the apologists, the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the books of Moses were revelations of the Logos. Here the notion that some have entertained angels unawares turns into the notion that some have entertained the Son of God unawares. And once more, the divine word active in Jesus of Nazareth is thought of as having been present in the world long before the first century. The idea becomes a picture in Rubilev's famous icon of the Trinity, in which Abraham's three angelic visitors are the three persons of the Godhead one being Jesus Christ. Whatever one makes of Justin's exegesis of Old Testament theophanies or of his philosophical conception of the Logos, Christian theology has always sought to enlarge the person of Jesus. The doctrines of his pre-existence and of his session at God's right hand are ways of saying that his birth to Mary and Joseph was not his beginning, and that his death on a cross was not his end. The divine reality incarnate in Jesus can't be confined to one man's span of life. Rather, the activities of the word contain but exceed the activities of a first century human being. Those who think like this may well wonder, as did Justin Martyr, whether or how that divinity might be revealed to people unacquainted with the Christian traditions about Jesus. I won't pursue, pursue further this line of inquiry, which is inevitably speculative. I simply observe that for those with certain religious convictions, the divinity manifested in Jesus of Nazareth can't be reduced to that historical figure. So the question of how people might come to know that divinity is all the more complicated. And with that, I'm done. It remains only to thank all of you so much for patiently listening to my stammerings. Thank you very much. Two thousand and eight completed. Please join me once more in thanking our distinguished guest and lecturer, Professor Dale Allison. <laughs>